Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Leeds Library, the Leeds Library's podcast series in which we talk to members of our extended community about their lives, their work, and their relationship to books, libraries, and literature. Founded in 1768, the Leeds Library is the oldest surviving subscription library in the UK, and throughout this series we'll also be diving periodically into the library's rich history to find out what makes us and our members one of the most interesting and unique cultural institutions in Leeds and the UK. I'm Molly McGrath, the Project's Assistant at the Leeds Library, and today our guest is Hannah Stone. A poet and theologian, Hannah has several collections of books to her name. She compares the monthly Wordspace open mic, is the editor of Dreamcatcher, and is the host of Now But Verse, a series of regular lunchtime poetry talks and readings which take place here at the Leeds Library. She is also involved with the Leeds Leader Festival and convenes the Poets Composers Forum. So, Hannah, hello, welcome to the Leeds Library podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on this. Thank you very much for having me. Very grateful. Usually... um, uh, it's you kind of asking the questions in Nat But Verse because you run Nat But Verse at the library, which is kind of a monthly spoken word poetry event. Um, so it feels a bit funny to be the other way around. It's, yes, it is sort of reverse sort of roles, isn't it? But yeah. um, it, I mean, yes, I mean, and I can talk a bit about Nat But Verse, but presumably well, I want to know about all the other things yes, I we'll, do we'll as well. We'll talk a bit about Nat But Verse later on. Um, but I mean, yeah, in the, in the introduction, we call you a, a busy creative and we say it's an understatement, which is very true. Um, and I think one of the things that when I was researching you that seemed to emerge again and again in your work is the wonderful breadth and diversity of projects and collaborations that you've worked on and been part of. Um, and you say, you've said that a lot of your work is um, facilitating as much as it is collaborative, um, but you're also a poet in your own work. Uh, as with most poetry, is highly individual and highly personal. And I'm really interested in this tension between the individual and the collective side of creativity. I think a big part of being a creative and a creative facilitator, more specifically, is about finding the connections and the relationships that help to develop and nurture your own and others' individual uh, individual work. Yeah. To me, one of the projects that really exemplifies this is Wordspace, um, which is an imprint published under Indigo Dreams that you um, set up during your creative writing MA at Leeds. So that's a bit of a long-winded way of, of leading into my first question, which is, can you talk a little bit about Wordspace and how it came to be and what part collaboration played in that process? Yes, thank you. Well, I will. And I have to first of all flag up that I did this um, as part of a, an MA in creative writing at Leeds Trinity University. I was fortunate enough to be on the first cohort of students for that and Mm. I studied under the wonderful poets um, who live in York, Amina Alyal and Oz Hardwick and Martin Bedford who was the prose tutor on that. Um, It was a great thing to do studying creative writing and we weren't kind of you know taught how to write as such but we we learnt a lot about it. We learnt a lot about how to do things with our writing and the portfolio opportunities were really imaginative so I decided for one of them that I would research the process of self-publication mm. um, and produce a self-published volume which I did and it's called Perfect Timing and and then I rather pretentiously decided that this was going to be volume one um, in a, a, a Leeds Trinity University imprint mm. um, and I asked a friend of mine Rosemary Mitchell who we'll mention later if we could think of an idea for this imprint and we came up with the idea Wordspace and that's now actually not only the logo for these volumes that have indeed been published by Indigo Dreams, but also for the open mic, which I compare. 
So um, I just produced this little volume of poetry um, and it was fun doing it and I learned how to upload my files onto a, a database. I think it was called Create Space. And I was very thrilled to, to have a book that I could, um, mm. um, you know, sort of bandy around. And then Oz Hardwick took it to Indigo Dreams, um, who are a publisher in the West Country, and arranged an amazing opportunity, really, that every year they would publish three volumes under this imprint that I'd set up, one of which would be a solo authored book, one would be a collaboration, and then the third one, which... Um, is still happening and, and has come out just very recently is an anthology of work by people associated with Leeds Trinity University and it's edited by two of the postgrad students as mm. part of the assessment for their module. Um, so I've been very fortunate that actually two of my collaborations have been published by Indigo Dreams um, as the sort of word space collaboration of the year. Um, so that that was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I also decided that I didn't want to self-publish again. Mm. <laughs> um, we were talking about this in Outward Verse recently and about, you know, why do poets like to be published? And we do. Um, and it's partly vanity and it's partly wanting to communicate in a particular way with people. But um, I wouldn't self-publish again. I like the fact that somebody else has selected my mm. work and that they've they've deemed it worthy of publication well I think that kind of goes back to the idea of creative networks and doing yeah. things collectively and I think the wonderful thing about DIY publishing and self-publishing is that you can do what you want and I saw a really a, a great quote recently about DIY uh, zines I think it was yeah but it was saying that DIY uh, work or DIY spaces don't have to replicate the kind of the structures that they don't like or that are oppressive or exclusionary yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. which I really like but but again you need a creative network and you need people that you can collaborate with and, and I think the process of writing is really individual and you have a lot of um, I think a lot of the poems in your your first collection Lodestone although actually perfect timing <laughs> now I'm sort of yeah I'm but it's almost like um first minus one yeah <laughs> and I don't always admit to it yeah um, 0. 0.5 yeah um, but yeah. there are a lot of poems where you kind of you you're alone and you're kind of this romantic poet yes. in nature figure but yeah. then I think that's that uh, there's also this kind of connectivity and, and acknowledgement of other people. Yeah, there is. And just to go back on, on what you said, which I think is very true, I think one of the things about self-publishing is it can be a bit solipsistic mm. um, and you know, it can be self-indulgent and there's nothing wrong with being self-indulgent. But it is also a very individualistic thing. And I think you're right. Um, yeah, we have this vision of the... Um, you know, wandering lonely as a cloud, the sort of romantic idea of the poet. Mm. But actually, even the romantic poets were very connected. And mm. Wordsworth was, you know, around during the French Revolution. And we don't tend to hear that side of him very much because we get, you know, um, sort of stalled by the daffodils and the mm. lakes. And, and the I think it's quite <laughs> a masculine sort of image, isn't it, really, this this romantic poet? And it, yeah. I don't know. We'll talk a bit about... Um, the, your feminism in your in your work yes. a bit later on, and, yeah. and also editing. But I think people forget that editing is is such an important yes. part of the yeah. writing process, and and you edit as well. And that you know that those two are kind of symbiotic in a way. Yeah, I think. yeah. Um, but I mean, you were talking about the the first um, you know the first collection I had published that actually was published by someone else, which was Lodestone, um, and one of the poems that you enjoyed in that, which is. Um, 
I suppose typical really of the yes you know the solitary poet and actually it's quite um telling this is a poem about bees and they were actually solitary bees mm. <laughs> and I thought how very appropriate to write about <laughs> solitary bees um yeah. but so this, will, are you sorry yeah th- this poem also picks up on um something we're going to talk about later which is the sort of um symbiotic relationship between the academic side of my life and the, and the sort of creative side mm. um so I, I guess this one um, I like this poem, I have to say, because Billy Collins chose it um, to win a prize, and it's not everyone who can say that. <laughs> well, it stood out to me as well, definitely, um, when I was and, reading uh, this collection. And I like it because it's a little bit whimsical, um, it's a bit irreverent, um, and it is very much, um, you know, a personal experience, but also something that just kind of then goes down a, a bit of a, a rabbit hole. Um, so I think I'll just um, I'll just read it and we'll sort of maybe unpick it a bit more later. So this is Buzz Off. For some days now, bees have shared the air brick in my study. Tomorrow, a field biologist arrives to identify, pacify and remove them from my life. I envisage him calming them to sleep with puffs of smoke, then carefully taking a soft brush and sweeping the dozing creatures into a large canvas sheet, like the one the Apostle Peter saw in a vision lowered from heaven, containing an ark full of all God's four-footed beasts. I wonder if, while he is about it, the biologist, or maybe some cosmic exterminator, could brush my room clean of God, collecting each vituperative doctrine the sting of original sin and foul stench of misogyny, and drop them into the hanging cloth, prodded, where necessary, by tiny demons who have stolen their pitchforks from Hieronymus Bosch. But in the evening, having cleaned the smears of honey off the wall, I find the Almighty curled on my sofa between the cats, like the old friend who forgets to leave after dinner sending me yawning into the kitchen for a second pot of coffee, wishing I could extinguish the candle and pad upstairs, accompanied by purring companions and no sense of guilt. Wow, thank you. I Yeah, I love that one. And I love the kind of... Uh, the It's not really a juxtaposition, but the kind of, you know, the religious kind of language and then compared to the everyday kind of small noticing little details in your life I really like yeah I think poets are observers and I think Mm. um I mean yes it is a personal poem it is about something that happened to me um and it it's also talking about my unease with with religion Mm. um but it is also um I mean what is it who is it said that um good poets Bad poets borrow, good poets steal. Um, the mm. idea of Hieronymus Bosch. I mean, you know, I I, I love visual art, and I often mm. get images not only from the natural world, as you've mentioned, the sort of you know wandering lonely as a cloud, but quite often there will be something from um, a book or a painting or a mm. newspaper article or something or a piece of music that will prompt a poem mm. and that will perhaps sort of um, steer the direction of a poem. Yeah, I always see poetry actually, and and the kind of the act of writing a poem as almost similar to looking in a way and I think poetry has this wonderful quality of being able to make everything the same size and I don't mean like you know 
physically or visually, obviously, yeah. but when you, you know, kind of shine the light, that's a, a bad metaphor, but place your attention on something as a poet in a poem, um, you know, it might be something large like religion, um, or it might be something small like noticing a bee. They all kind of share, are reduced to the same kind of size and have the same significance, which I really like. I think it's, yes, it is a matter of the significance and the importance that you as a, a poet or as a writer place on an experience or, or, um, or an idea. And your reader may or may not share that, and, mm. and that, that that particular idea might be very big for them, or it might be completely alien to them. Um, but I think you just sort of offer it there, so you observe, and then perhaps you're like a photographer, you take a little snapshot of it, mm. and then you sort of invite people to flick through your album, mm. and they might see something quite different in what you saw. Mm. Um, so in that poem I've just read, somebody might get really... Um, hung up on the on the misogyny and sort of think that it was a poem about predominantly about that or they might wonder what the cats are doing in there you know and they might then sort of go off on a little sort of journey with the cats mm. <laughs> and that's fine you can, you can go anywhere you like you know you don't if you bought the poem by listening to it you can then kind of spend it however you want mm. you don't have to invest it in the same way that somebody else does and speaking of the the kind of the religious imagery there and and um religion and and christianity uh, i think it's early eastern christianity is yeah. something that you did your masters in i think my masters and, a, and my and a PhD. phd yeah yes. so obviously yes. that you know theology is in an academic sense yeah. um is such a huge aspect of your work um, and that kind of creeps into your poetry, which I think is It great. does sometimes. The, the first um, place where that happened, actually, and this was actually what prompted Lodestone, was um, a collection of poetry edited by Oz Hardwick at um, Leeds Trinity University called New Crops from Old Fields, Eight Medievalist Poets. And he very kindly invited me to be one of those eight medievalist poets. And it was actually... A phrase in one of those poems that, mm. it, that then enticed Stairwell to offer me the publishing contract for Lodestone. Mm, wow! I can actually read you the poem. That's that... what, yes, no, definitely. <laughs> so, um, and this is another of those little moments of time. I was travelling to an academic conference in Boston, um, and almost got totally grounded in a big winter storm that hit the, the whole of the eastern seafront. And there I was in the airport. And there was a little bird flying around inside the departure lounge, and it made me think about um, a story in in Bede, who's you know the earliest historian of England, mm. um, you know sort of pre-medieval. Um, it's also one of my very first prose poems, so um, I'll give you this, and it's called Passability, and that's a pun on passe being the word for sparrow, um, with the the sense of sort of transience. Let's say it was a sparrow high above the heads of stalled travellers, that fistful of feathers, that's the phrase that caught uh, mm. Rose's attention, that fistful of feathers flying north-south or maybe east-west. God knows where you really are in an airport. Somehow it must have dodged all human checks and curtailments, charting a circle of hell where the fetid fog from discarded food could not escape. No breath of unrecycled air could enter your lungs. It mapped a steady course through the canopy's metal frets. 
Maybe its DNA remembered the sparrow bead borrowed to show the transience of human existence, a calm moment for the bird darting from one end of the hall to the other, then shooting out into the epistemological ignorance of the winter night, entering the historian's cloud of unknowing. It is winter in Newark, too. It's a toss-up between these two icons of illusory freedom, the ground-bound giant with its winking wings on the snowy runway, and this small brown bird who's got into the departure lounge but cannot find its way out. Wow. I love that um, uh, epistemological ignorance. That's <laughs> yeah. great. Yeah. Um, I, I think that theology is so kind of tied up with history um, and uh, philosophy and feminism and all of yeah. these things are kind of combined together. And I, I love that they're all, there are so many kind of layers to your poems. Um, so you you also teach at, at the Open University um, and obviously you've, you've studied theology for a long time um, and you're a writer and a poet and I wanted to kind of, I mean, I, I originally wanted to ask, do you think that universities do enough to kind of foster creative practices and interdisciplinary practices <laughs> and academia broadly? Um, uh, or I mean, I don't know, is it important that they're... they're they are part of the process of writing or learning or do you think that they're kind of necessarily behind the scenes? There's a lot of really important points there and I think one one way I'd answer that really is to pick up on, as we, we will a lot in this conversation on gender, mm. um, when you mention interdisciplinarity because I think interdisciplinarity is really a lateral way of working and my feeling is that when you put women together, they tend mm. to work in this lateral way rather yeah. than in a hierarchical, you know, I'm, in t- I'm on top and you're at the bottom of the pile way, which, you know, I mean, it's a bit of a trope, but seems to be more of a male mm. way of operating. Um, do universities do it enough? Well, they do when there's money tied up with it. Mm. And I've not fared terribly well because I've, I've never really been able to... Um, invent projects that attracted money Mm. and then I would get involved in you know things that I enjoyed doing because it was connecting with people rather than because it was making the university money Um, and one of those that that um, one of those projects that that came out actually of me being at Leeds Trinity University was another of these Indigo Dreams collaborations um, called Holding Up Half the Sky Mm. Um, and I'd like to say a little bit about that. It's very precious to me. I, I wrote it with um, a very good friend of mine, Rosemary Mitchell, who died recently. And she was a professor of history. And very shortly before she died, she was ordained as a deacon in the Anglican Church. So she had, um, she'd come to sort of religion, organised religion in that way, or, you know, sort of academic religion later than me. She did a, her, her, you know, study as part of training for the priesthood. But before that, we'd um, had this idea, and I honestly can't remember quite how it came about, um, to write a collection of poems which was giving voice to women who, for various reasons in history, had been silenced or maybe not even had a voice. Um, Partly because their gender and the period at which they lived meant that they just didn't have a voice. Mm. They, They were maybe not part of a literate community or they didn't have the money um, to be heard 
And so we, we both started writing and the collection I put together um, has the title Holding Up Half the Sky, which is a phrase from uh, Mao Tse Tung originally, uh, which was that women held up half the sky, the heavier half <laughs> of it. Um, and we started, you know, chronologically early, uh, Rosemary being a historian, you know, contributed various points. And uh, the poem that you've picked from that is um, fits quite well, actually, with not, you know, it comes a little bit later than the bead one I just read. <laughs> but um, these were all found poems. And um, this particular poem um, really steals from Julian of Norwich's um sort of visions really um mm. and julian of norwich which i i i didn't realize but it what i love about this collection is that in the back it has a little kind yeah, of index notes which yes. which tells yeah. you about where the poems come from yes um yeah. and this yeah julian of norwich where is the the section she's a woman the, the first recorded woman to have written in yeah, history that's yeah yeah she was a 14th century hermit and um she wrote this book the the visions of divine love which were the what she called the showings of God to her on her sickbed. She was, um, you know, very, very ill. And, and you know, we don't know whether these were sort of, you know, semi-death visions or not. But she, what was very striking and what made me want to write this bit rather than... A lot of people know about the sort of the image of everything being a hazelnut. But I wanted to write using this text because it has feminine imagery to describe god and really that wasn't happening very much i mm. would say until about the 20th century um so um and this is it's i mean with a found poem you can do a lot that's pretty well verbatim but you maybe put in some line breaks or you edit bits or you take bits out and i think there wasn't very much here that i um altered i just sort of slightly mm. rearranged it and maybe put in a few theological phrases um, so this is this is me channeling Julian of Norwich, and we say Julian, but she was a woman. But of course, it's typical, mm. isn't it, that she had a man's name? Well, I realised that <laughs> I said accidentally that she was the first woman to have written in history. That's not true. The first woman to have to be that's been recorded, yes, first yeah, recording yeah. of women's writing that yeah. we have in in Britain. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to point out women cat could write before that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So this is a showing in which I am nourished by milk from Jesus's breasts. In this showing, I know that God rejoices to be our mother. He whose sinews were knit together inside the innocent virgin makes himself the womb of our salvation, forming our limbs and fleshing them out till, too cramped to rest, we urge to be birthed. Then he suffers the sharpest labour pangs. Pain pierces him, stabbing like the nails that pin him to the tree. And I see that our sinful selves do not slither into the world as through a woman's splayed legs. Rather, we are shepherded in and out of his blessed bosom through the holes made in his sweet side by Roman spear thrusts. His wounds are an open gate, so we can enter him and find union, just as he longs to find his home deep in our being. And I see Jesus lift my infant body up to suckle at his breasts, grasp his gushing nipple thrust into my mouth, so I can suck the flow of his marvellous love, 
nourishing me in my first Eucharist. That's fantastic. I love, love that line. Uh, Our sinful selves do not slither into the world. (laughs) So fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. It kind of gives you shivers and it's a bit gross, but also just like really cool. Yes. Well, and I was trying to sort of make the most of sort of alliteration and, and, Mm. you know, sort of picking up on some sort of medieval tropes there. Mm. Um, I mean, it comes down to us as a prose text and I was trying to turn that into poetry. Mm. So... um, and somewhere in my notes, I will have, you know, the original passage from which I was working. Mm. Um, and I re- honestly can't remember now where the where the boundary came between me and Julian in that. Mm. But you, when you do notes at the back of the book, you kind mm. of cover yourself. Yeah, <laughs> but I love, I really like that. And I, I think what's really struck me about holding up Half the Sky as a, as a concept was we've kind of, we've talked about this idea you know I like you I'm kind of loath to say that women work collaboratively and men are whatever but you know you have in 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 writing in academia in art in whatever subject you have these this kind of genius artist trope yeah um which actually is really often not the case like you know uh uh what's that word renaissance painters had workshops yeah um, yeah, yeah with loads of you know um, and what I liked about this work was that you were writing almost collaboratively with these women um, from history whose kind of voices had not been looked into, and it, as well as collaboratively with Rosemary. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Yes, I hadn't I hadn't really thought of it like that that we were collaborating with them because of course they they don't really have any say in this collaboration. Well, yeah. but, but um, again, and it, I'm actually I'm quite surprised to hear that. Um, this is mostly kind of a found text because it sounded like you in a way. I, I kind of wouldn't have been surprised if yeah. if this had all have been kind of your your own poem. Well, um, some of the poems in this collection are more, uh, and some are less found. Mm. Um, and um, I mean, I do commend it. And my my dear friend Rosemary, um, you know, who was an absolutely amazing historian, also had a lovely sense of humour. And I mean, I won't read it because I think you should buy the book yourself. But uh, one of my favourite pieces in the book is complete fiction, but but sort of pastiche. And it is the receipt book of Lady Cleavage of Coombe <laughs> for the year of our Lord, 1792. And it's just utterly scurrilous. And yeah, this yeah, is yeah. a sort of imaginary um, aristocrat. Um, and it's just full of the sort of hypocrisy and double dealing of people of that class. Um, mm. So, you know, you can have a lot of fun with the past um, mm. and I you know I bring it right up to date because I actually the final poem um, is is um, a found poem from the the words of sacked attorney general Sally Yates who um, who Donald Trump um, got rid of because she mm. was actually getting too close to the mark <laughs> um, and I'm sure now you know we might have a leg of strut on here you know yeah. we, 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 it, it never stops really the way women are you know sort of have their words taken away from them and yeah. um, you know sort of but pushed into corners you're right the way that you uh, actually you you in a lot of your work you've dealt with that in a quite a humorous way and the next collection that I, I want to talk about is fit to bust um, yeah which is a collection of of work that you wrote with Pamela Scobie yes um, and that explores it's I, I wasn't sure how to kind of paraphrase it <laughs> feminism in it, it, in relation to underwear I think you, you have you say it well in your introduction um, that's kind um, of impetus behind it uh, yes and then you know I do want to go back to some of the um, other poems I've read but yes this is a good link to that so um, in the preface I talk about um, how this idea, it's called Fit to Bust, 
um, an unwrapping of female desire and attire. And Pamela Scobie, who I wrote it with, is in the most amazing uh, poet. She trained as an actor. She's also, um, and this is relevant, she's incredibly glamorous. And one of the things we're doing in this, in this book is saying, well, if you're a feminist, you can be really glamorous mm. or you can choose not to be. And the front cover of the book um, shows Pam and me wearing corsets and high heels and looking very archly over our spectacles. Um, and the cover was, was painted by our lovely publisher, um, Kathleen Strafford. Um, but it started from reading a book in uh, a book club I was in um, and a book by H.G. Wells called Anne Veronica. And there was this amazing description of how um, some you know, middle-aged woman assumed that the heroine must have been wearing very ably chosen stays because her figure looked so tidy. And I said to Pam, we ought to write, um, we, we'd already done a performance collaboration, I said we ought to write a book about control underwear and why men want us to occupy less space than we really do. Mm -hmm. uh, Pam is about a quarter the size of me. Um, without any control underwear. Um, anyway, so we just we just had a huge amount of fun with this, um, and this this was collaborative in a different way because we wrote it very very intensively over a period of a couple of months, and we both woke up early in the morning. So one of us would send a poem draft off to the other, and you know we'd open our email, laugh like a drain, and write a response and send it back. You know, mm. and they, it was like sort of ping pong really. Um, so there are poems that are sort of paired. Um, but again, there were some that were that were found poems, um, and I think the one you chose from here is another of those sort of. Is that a found poem? Yeah, because well, it has a kind of historical-ish kind of feel to it. Not, and it has yeah. footnotes or endnotes, which I thought was really interesting. Which I've yeah. seen a lot of. I really, I just thought it was honestly hilarious. It, it's it's found um, in a peculiar sort of way. So I'll, I will have to give a bit of background to it. The poem is called. The Empress Theodora from her bath. And I think to explain it, I'm just going to have to read the, um, the note at the back. Um, Procopius, in whose secret histories a highly redacted account of this 6th century empress's life may be found, records that courtiers disapproved of this empress for staying too long in the bath. Mm. That made me laugh because I, one of my main kind of rescue remedies is to lie in a long hot bath. Before she married Emperor Justinian, she was a circus performer and sex worker. And the asterisks that I put into this poem denote the work of a censor akin to the Victorian Thomas Bowdler. Mm. Now, Bowdler took Shakespeare and took all the sexy bits out, and mm. you end up with some sort of insipid thing that sort of, you know, satisfied the Victoria Paterfamilias, but was just a complete travesty. So... Um, and I'd worked a bit from Procopius with some of the academic work I'd done. So I just really, I just took this tiny little fragment about she stayed too long in the bath and this was a bad thing to do. Um, and she was, she was quite, you know, quite a feisty woman, I think. So I just made this up. And um, when I perform it with Pam, she does the interjections, yes. which are effectively footnotes. Well, I was going to say, I'm um, really sorry. I've chosen one that <laughs> works so well on the page, but which I wasn't, I mean, I... I I, I really loved it. It was one of my favourites, but I I'll, um, <laughs> I'll do a different voice for okay. the interjection. So the way it's put out on the page is that when I get to one of the sort of, and it's a little footnote sign, so it's also taking the mickey out of um, academic work, which has yeah. to be footnote yeah. and reference, whatever. So I will say when I get to a footnote, and then, um, and then you've got the sort of rubric of how people basically kill off texts by 
by over-editing mm. them, really, and by editing them very often from a male perspective. But I think what's so funny about this is that when you get to a footnote and it's kind of, like, written in this quite, you know, like... Formal vague, language. Formal yes. language. Yes. It's the the humour comes from the fact that actually you what you imagine in your head is kind of much ruder and oh, worse, yeah, I absolutely. think, than the actual... Yes. I, oh, yes. It's just so great. Yeah. So, and I have to say, when I performed... The, the, there are a couple of poems in this collection, and it did start as a performance. We, we managed mm. to do it about a week before lockdown it was just incredible and then and then the book came out during lockdown and sold like hotcakes again there are plenty of copies of it available um so this is the empress theodora from her bath i have been told the daughters of rachel are required by priestly tradition to immerse themselves for cleansing after their monthly courses blood never bothered me neither dripping from my one the translation is obscene, but indicates the uh, uh, female pudenda, uh, neither dripping from my yes, nor shedding it by sword or dagger. I chose this perfumed pool each day to wash away the slobber and spent seed. Though imperial, my spouse splatters his spittle when he embraces me, and too, a lacuna in all manuscripts. They are rash, those courtiers who chide me for lingering in my bath. If I wished, I could... Three. Blemish due to water damage. Possibly remove or curtail their appendages. They should remember who pays their wage. Hey, girl, bring more hot water now, or I'll tell the slave master to... Four. Phrase removed as offensive to common decency. <laughs> Excellent. You've, yeah, I'm so impressed that works actually really well. <laughs> yeah, broken. but you really ought to hear Pam do it. Yeah. Just, she absolutely brings the house down on this. And yeah. there's one, one that she reads in this that it makes me laugh so much I have to turn away from the microphone. Um, so she, <laughs> well, yeah, she's, she's very, very funny. Um, um, well, I'd, I'd like to ask you about spoken word, actually, because, yeah, as you say, Fit to Bust was conceived as a spoken word piece, and you did perform it. Yeah. Um, and you work a lot with spoken word um, and spoken poetry in other capacities. Now, but verse, which takes place at the library um, as a poet's, is a, it's, it's a conversation with poets and they read their poems aloud. Um, and actually, we've just we've just done one. Which we have. Was poets who also work with the radio. So yes. that was really about kind of yeah. sound and how that affects yeah. written poetry. Can I just actually there, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, because I just remembered that when I did a show with Sean for um, a literature festival in Liverpool. Mm. This is Sean Street. Sean Street, who's in the, uh, the Now But Verse for December um, 2021 we were talking about sound and the, and and I read a poem from a completely different collection mm. which was all about sound and I don't think you've actually even seen this one Molly so it's a bit unfair to spring it on you but it's a little collection of book uh, uh, of poetry about the Welsh coastal path Sean Street and I were both published by Maytree Press yeah. which is a lovely publishers in uh, Marsden um, and this kind of also relates to my process as a poet because alongside all the collaboration and the facilitating everything I do do a little bit of that you know romantic solitary mm. thing and the place for up for me where I do that is on the uh, the west coast of Pembrokeshire mm. the very very far west of Wales and I go to a, 
a little rocky outcrop called Stromblehead, and I take myself there for a week every year. Yeah. And just walk on the coastal path and write poetry. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I would like to ask you about landscape, because obviously yeah. landscape, and yeah, I know yeah, you're yeah. An, an avid gardener. Yes, so yeah. obviously, and a walker, yeah. Yeah, nature is, is important in yes. your work. So, I, yeah, yeah, I suppose maybe if you have a, a poem from this collection, um, give it a read, and then, yeah, yeah. I guess talk about the sound and, and spoken word, but also maybe... Yeah, it'd be great to hear about your relationship with landscape and, yes. and walking. Yeah, I think I sometimes describe myself as a, a kinesthetic writer and I often, um, there's a little poem at the end of Perfect Timing where I talk about taking a poem for a walk mm. um, and I do walk a lot and I, I tend now, it was enforced during lockdown, I really prefer to walk on my own because mm. I can just think. Um, so when I go to Wales, I walk, you know, obsessively on the coastal path and it just is absolutely beautiful and amazing and um, you know it is a very solitary thing but there are occasionally other people there and one year when I went um, I, I stopped to look down a bit, um, at the beach below me and there were a lot of baby seals um, and there were some a couple of kids who were terribly excited by this and they were they were just generally these sort of wonderful enthusiastic kids who just wanted to tell you everything and they told me that they were staying in a cottage nearby that had no electricity. <laughs> and this was so cool. Um, so I did that poet thing of, you know, stealing their story and then making my own narrative. I did yeah. also look up where the cottage was, so mm. the name of it is correct, and you can find it and probably rent it. Um, but it, it is about sound, and the reason Sean and I discussed this in, in the work I did with him was it was about the sound of the spoken word, which is mm. something, again, we're talking about in, in the most recent now, but verse. Anyway, um, this is Penryn, which is the name of the cottage. Penryn, two-star cottage, no electricity precludes higher grade. The cottage makes its own acoustics. Cast iron stove throws off clicks. Its charge of logs pop and whine. Soft breaths whisper up the funnel of oil lamps. Matches scratch and flare as they catch the wick of candles placed beside the open book, where, biscuit in hand, the boy devours pictures from Colin's Guide to Birds. Mouths chuff as he spider writes a date and grid ref. Choose the syllables of its other-tongued name, Brangosgoch. His sister's eyes are red riding hood wide as she recites all she has learnt about sea otters. At night the wind rocks their duvet nests in the crog loft, murmurs tomorrow's secrets into the shells of their ears. Wonderful. That's so, yeah. It's interesting, I think... I was going to ask about yeah spoken word and and the communities around that, but actually I think a, a thought that just came to me was that poems are kind of you go for a walk and it takes you hours and hours and hours and you do all this thinking and you get kind of maybe if you're lucky a bit of an epiphany and a bit of a clearer head. But in a way, it's po poems are nice and especially if they're spoken to you because you you kind of the poet does the work for you in a way and you kind of get that little sense of epiphany of having really thought and cleared your head and, yeah, and thought about yeah. something and, and been in a different headspace and seen different images and, Hopefully. and felt different um, 
just by kind of yeah reading a poem it's kind of a little a snapshot yes, of that which is immersive really nice. activity yeah. yeah yeah um which is i guess why landscape is so important to a lot of poets because it you know you're 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 in a different environment you're in a different headspace it's quite creative i think also landscape is just something which is so much bigger than you mm. you know and um um i was saying actually when i was chatting at the beginning of um uh, now but verse that that you know I talk I, I talk to myself quite a bit because I live on my own and um, I'm sure you know when my boys next see me they'll tell me I'm getting even worse and I've really you know, I've turned into a mad cat lady um, but quite often when I'm walking I just I just sort of address the landscape and I'll just sort of say well you're a beautiful valley aren't you, you know? <laughs> it's just sort of I, I wouldn't do it if there was someone else there but I I just I do get really touched and really moved by the natural world and particularly Mm. when I'm walking in the dales you can just see millennia of 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 history and prehistory in the um, in the sort of layers of geology Um, and it's a very lived landscape so one of the things that's peculiar to the the Yorkshire Dales or or, you know other perhaps northern areas of England is it's obviously been lived in by people you've got all these dry stone walls which I'm completely obsessed with so people have needed to divide up the land and decide which bit belonged to who and Mm. there are all these hay barns in the middle of the fields and that even if they're derelict now it tells you that there was a time when this was a really important thing to do to Mm. get your winter grass in turn it into hay to feed your livestock because they you know they wouldn't have anything to eat and and it's that sort of the fragile connection with subsistence really that Mm. that people in pre-industrial societies would have had so I'm very touched by the history and also by the beauty of the landscape and again you were talking about the you know seeing a little thing and everything being the same size I could write a poem about a sunset I could write a poem about a flower bud Mm. and those are such different things in actual size aren't they but Mm. you can make the poem equally big or equally small about either of those yeah um so uh, did you, I guess, inter- you know, we've just come out of a, well, some time ago, but we've come out of a period of, of lockdown yeah. where lots of people have been, um, I guess, more isolated from their kind of communities. Um, obviously, now but Verse moved online for a long time. But um, did you find yourself walking more um, during that time? Or did you find yourself writing more? How did that change your process? Yeah. Um, I walked an enormous amount and I mm. took this, you know, an hour's exercise a day with a complete pinch of salt. Um, but also, pragmatically, if I walked for an hour from my own front door, I couldn't get very far away from people because mm. all the open spaces were full mm. of other people walking for an hour from their yeah, front yeah. door. And if I walked a bit further, I mean, I live just inside the um, the ring road in North Leeds. If I walked the other side of the ring road, I'd then be out in open country which would give me my sort of fix of curlews and lambs and things, mm. which was nice. But also I'd see far fewer people. Um, it was a very, I mean, it was a very odd time, but it was also a very productive time because by immense good fortune, um, I, I was appointed as poet theologian mm. um, with Leeds Church Institute um, with a brief to write a weekly blog um, reflecting on the experience of lockdown for the citizens of Leeds using the medium of poetry. Mm. Um, it was such a privilege to have that, uh, you know, as a job for a year. Um, and it actually led to my most recent book, which is also with Maytree, and it's called um, Reflections 
and copies of that are available through Leeds Church Institute. And again, it was another collaborative thing because I was sometimes using poetry that other people had written. Um, I did include some fresh poems of my own in here, but I also, um, you know, quoted bits of T.S. Eliot and Brian Bilston and, you know, mm. various other things. Um, and also, I think it was the first time I'd really, seriously as a writer, written anything other than poetry and to mm. be writing blogs I discovered was actually enormously good fun I really really loved doing it so I went through this process every week of having a sort of reflective period which might well have been a walk a sort of gestational period mm. and then I'd sit down and just write the blog quite quickly mm. um, and there would usually be one little image that would that would stand out um, and and they're all they're all dated. And when I look back on it now, I think, blimey, was that was that really what was happening then? You know, it was mm. just it just sort of was a bit a bit extraordinary. Do you actually. find that when you look back through different collections that they really remind you of a time? And do you do you find looking at them in retrospect, if there are kind of themes or images that crop up again and again that you think, well, I was really, I was really working through something there, or whoa, yeah. wow, that was a really, that must have been really preoccupied. Oh me. God, yeah, yeah. I mean, if we have time, I can read you. I mean, I, I, I the collection we haven't mentioned yet, which is with um, Indigo Dreams as as a solo collection, Missing Miles, and mm. that was, um, they had this lovely thing. They had a poetry competition, and um, it was the Jeff Stevens Memorial Poetry Prize, and I won that in 2016. Mm. Um, and the prize is to get your, you know, collection of poetry published, which is just the best thing ever. Yeah. Um, and I decided in this collection, which came out in 2017, that I was going to finally lay to rest um, uh, a bad relationship. Mm. And there is a sequence of what I call my Gary poems in <laughs> He will never he will never have heard any of them, and I'm sure he doesn't you know ever think about me. But um, this was a, a bad man who broke my heart quite a few years ago actually, um, and and I realised that I'd written probably twelve or fourteen poems about yeah. this man. Yeah, please read one. <laughs> um, well, this is one that I've often read, and usually people sort of go, oh how sad. And I read it once in London to a much younger audience, and they laughed, and I thought. Well, isn't that interesting? You laugh or you um, cry, really. Yeah, yeah. So this is another example of a poem where, um, you know, I've had a little germ of an idea, but it's also, to some extent, intertextual because um, the recurrent image, and I can't remember how I got to it, really, is from Isaac Walton's The Complete Angler, which is a book written in 1653, which is usually seen as a, a you know, a Christian allegory. Um and it's about fly fishing, but about how, you know, it's that image of sort of the fishermen and mm. fishers of men, I suppose. Um, so the poem is called The Angler. And, you know, I'm here again, I've got this found thing going on, haven't I? So there are a few lines um, which I'll try and indicate, which are um, quotations from his The Complete Angler. <clears throat> edit out the cough, I'll have a slow Yeah, moment. no, <laughs> that's fine. So this is The Angler, and it starts with a quotation from Isaac Walton. The light fly does usually make the most sport in a dark day, and the darkest and least fly in a bright or clear day. You are a natural from the start, 
lured me with words like remarkable, a neglected jewel. You laid down night hooks in bedtime texts, signed off G, kiss, before close down. Then you added enticements, hooked me on Joe Malone and first class travel. The bathrooms in our separate homes acquired mirror image supplies, your expensive mouthwash, my budget moisturiser. One weekend, you brought with you the last of your everyday Dunhill cologne, not the posh one you wore with the 2K watch. It slopped in a squat bottle, square and solid as a tiny fish tank, its thick walls surrounding a curved pool where your fragrance was a peachy puddle. Left alone, I pick books off the shelves, skim them for answers. I find that the trout fisher should vary his flies according to the season. In early May, the ruddy fly is best. It has a body made of red wool wrapped about with black silk. I still wear the cashmere sweater dress. Pair it with leggings you'd never have allowed. And sometimes just for myself, I unwind a pair of the hold-ups you supplied as approved hosiery. It's then I find the dead weight of your weekend scent stored in my lingerie drawer. If I press hard enough, I can still release a whiff of you into my hand, though you are long gone and your touch is distorted in my memory, just like my fingers viewed at blurry angles through the heavy glass. It seems as if there should be so much more of you than dregs. As I roll the stockings up my legs, I feel the tug of the line you cast again and again from strong shoulders onto the ripples of my desire. In the autumn, the best lure is thread of gold or silver, silk of several colours, especially sad coloured to make the fly's head. I sprayed my cashmere with cedar oil to deter moths wrapped my jewellery in acid-free tissue. They're preserved unblemished. Though unwrapped, I feel the shadow of you, my departed angler, standing between the sun and the water, using a long line and not a little hook. Hmm. I like that you have in that one, I mean, you obviously have this kind of overarching metaphor which is is drawn from history but then also it's it's so you know it's nearly all that's what we were talking about that act of making little things big and um you know kind of describing the quite big momentous things like heartbreak with this kind of tiny assortment of images yeah you know and I feel like that's quite true to how we remember and how we think about things and how evocative certain things are Mm -hmm. so we were talking in now but verse about how um evocative sound is Mm. and whether sound is something that is um, less represented in poetry than the other senses and this is about how evocative perfume is Mm. and um, you know I think um, yeah I mean I've had other instances in my life of of when you know just coming across a particular perfume Mm. that I associated with something else took me right back to that moment yeah this is not really related but I uh, it's a thought that I had but I always find with things that are obviously quite personal that obviously I, you know, I 
there's no way that I'm like, oh yes, that's the same with me. I, that perfume also reminds me of an yeah, ex-boyfriend yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But it's it's almost the fact that you can tell how personal it is to someone else that is uh, important and effective in poems. Maybe just because I'm nosy, I don't know. <laughs> well, yes. And I mean, when, when as a poet you disclose something, I mean, you are always, in a way, the, the narrator. You are always mm. creating something. And this may or may not be a true story. Mm. You know, it's well, still exactly, something I've fabricated, Yeah, but it's isn't that it? kind of little shock of kind yes. of revelation of someone's being yeah. kind of vulnerable in a way. I don't know. Do you find that that's difficult? Are you, do you sometimes have difficulty drawing a line between yourself and the kind of self of your poems? Do um, you find it's people often will, you know, take them as one and the same and that's called They, they do. People make a lot of assumptions. Um, and I think... I think it can be dangerous writing stuff that's too personal. I think I, I'm kind of guided by Wordsworth's idea about emotion recollected in tranquility. Mm. And I think, yeah, you might throw something down on the page, but um, there, are, there are sort of gestational phases of poetry that I think for it to be your best work, it mostly needs to go through. Mm. Um, I mean, I have got poems that I've written that are quite successful, which people enjoy, which I'm happy with, that went through about one and a half drafts mm. and I've got others that have taken 20 years of mm. fiddling around with to mm. reach completion um, and I, I think for some people writing poetry is simply an outpouring of feeling mm. um, and I think I always want to be a, a bit suspicious a bit picky a bit pokey about what I've written mm. and to pull it around and you know to workshop it we've, mm. we've talked previously about workshopping poetry and, and I'm very fortunate to have wonderful poets who will you know I can share drafts with and they share their drafts with me so um, that sort of filters out some of the immediate pain yeah. you know or the immediate feeling um, and I guess a, a you know relevant example of that since we've mentioned her several times is my friend Rosemary Mitchell with whom I wrote Holding Up Half the Sky who, who died less than three months ago and somebody said to me, oh, are you writing lots of stuff? And I said, well, I've written lots of Rosemary poems. And mm. I have. I've written probably 20 poems about Rosemary. But they're far, far, far too raw to, mm. to share with anybody or to do anything yeah, with now. Course. Maybe in a year's time, I'll be able to look at them and work at them and take bits out and polish them. Mm. Um, but it was therapeutic doing, the, doing it. But I'm not deluding myself that they are yet poems. Yeah. They are drafts and yeah. they're part of that process but it goes back to what we were talking about i guess about the the you know editing being as much of process much part of the process as writing and that that actually writing and being creative is is actually it's all about really hard sustained graft and not a kind of genius act of inspiration yeah, or creation yeah, definitely. Um, Okay, so yeah, I wanted to ask you more about your work as an editor more broadly in editing um, in general. And I've got a very recent anthology here called Things Fall Apart, Mischievous Machines, which you edited, which also came out of the lockdown period. And I know that you edit Dreamcatcher as well. Um, so I guess I'd, I'd like to ask you what editing kind of brings to your process of writing and what goes through your head when you're making kind of editing decisions for your own and also for other people's work? Yeah, really interesting question. So Things Fall Apart was um, the third of a series of volumes that, um, again, was a kind of collaboration because it stemmed from um, a project run collaboratively between the University of Leeds 
and the Women's Engineering Society called Electrifying Women and mm. it, it's still around and there's a website um, with a lot of information about, again, another overlooked part of, of women's life, that there mm. were a lot of women engineers but mm. they've largely been subsumed by men. Um, and a good friend of mine who's also um, an academic, Graham Gooday, um, very kindly asked me to edit these volumes. And I had a lot of fun because it was really... Um, it was that business in this case of drawing out of people um, poems to do with a particular theme. There was mm. a topic and we had a couple that were fairly closely related to the original project. And then um, I think at some point in lockdown, it must have been when we were allowed to, to meet because I remember discussing it with Graham over a table in a restaurant. Um, and I said, well, I think we should just do something that's funny and I think the criteria for this one is it has to be about things going wrong mm. and it has to be funny and it has to have some basis in truth so I came up with the title Things Fall Apart um, which is um, both from um, Yeats's poem The Second Coming but also reflects the um, the title of um, Nigerian novelist Kinua Achebe's novel mm. so there's a sense of you know cosmic falling apart which felt tied in with lockdown um, but I had a very loyal bunch of um, contributors by then so a lot of the people who published in this had already submitted to the two previous volumes so the editing work here was largely um, me sort of sitting at my computer saying oh blimey I asked you not to do it in space and a half and you have and why have you done those silly indents and just kind of annoying stuff mm. like that but it was really lovely and then we had launches and people really enjoyed it and the other thing I enjoyed a lot about this was I commissioned from a Russian artist um, called Yenya Stashkov um, some really lovely artwork and he's They're actually really gorgeous, just yeah. done some artwork for an article I've written for Leeds Church Institute mm. in my capacity there as poet theologian um, so that's another type of collaboration and mm. another thing I do is collaborate with musicians which is mm. a big part well, of my I'm life I'm going to ask you about that in a second <laughs> actually yeah. but I'll say a little bit about Dreamcatcher while we're talking about editing so um, Dreamcatcher is a literary journal published by Stowell um, in York and it's been going for 25 years and I'm very honoured to be the editor of it um, and that's a very different sort of role because I get enormous numbers of submissions coming mm. um, and I have a team of readers um, seven or eight different people who I give the work to and everything that is accepted has been kind of selected by at least two people on the reading team mm. um, so I guess there there's you know a fair amount well there's a lot of organization and a fair amount of diplomacy which don't really associate themselves with the creative process normally um, but I kind of feel it's it's my giving back to the poetry community because mm. if I like my stuff to be poet, published, then someone's going to be putting that work in on my behalf. Mm. And with Dreamcatcher, I'm able to do that to bring to life the, the poetry that you know and the short stories and the artwork that that these people have created. Mm. So it's not you know it's not just about the vanity of getting my own stuff published. It's mm. about helping other writers to get their work out there and supporting them and mm. um yeah encouraging them to keep writing i really like that aspect of your work and that i think really struck me about you setting up your your kind of your own publishing imprint yeah um, early on in your poetry career yeah. and that kind of almost you know full circle yeah. attitude towards towards poetry where you know i really feel that you care about every aspect of it and about yeah. other people's work and it's not just this kind of like ego thing yeah um which is really nice um and yeah, I, I I wonder what 
um, when you are editing, what or catches your eye? What draws you to a piece of work? It's pluses and minuses. Mm. So um, I, I'm really um, allergic to sort of cliche, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in a short story or a poem. I want things that, even if they're talking about familiar experiences, are doing it in an interesting way. I think the phrase often is telling it slant. Mm. Um, there does have to be some sense of craft that I think these words have been chosen for a reason. Mm. Um, you know, by no means am I looking for everything you know with neat, tidy end rhymes. Absolutely not. But there needs to be a sense that it's been crafted, it's been thought about, um, and it works. Um, but equally, and I've just been um, initiating a very new and very young um, writer to the reading team. I'm really excited. She's a postgrad at, at uh, Leeds Trinity University. Mm. Um, I said, try and be objective enough to recommend something which you don't necessarily like, but which you think objectively is well written. Mm. Um, and I don't think there's any one way of proving that, and that's why we have this sort of kind of panoptic view of at least two people other than me reading everything, mm. so that um, you know we get other people, we get a variety of opinions about mm. a piece. Um, so that's yeah, that works well. And the journal comes out twice a year, so I've managed to arrange it so that I know when the peaks and troughs of work are going to come, and I fit it around all the. Mm. many other things that I do. That's really interesting, that balance between kind of taste and quality, I guess. I think I'm definitely much too invested in my own bad taste to ever be able to to successfully do that. Well, I mean, I guess the success of it is how many people subscribe to it as a journal, how many people submit to it. I want to finally um, bring it back again to collaboration, but specifically collaboration with musicians and music um and you convene the the poet composers forum i think at leeds and i always say this wrong leader 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 uh can you talk a little bit about that and about the role that that music and collaborating with musicians plays in your work yeah i mean this is really important to me i am a very very keen amateur musician um i'm a singer um And I was absolutely thrilled to be asked to do this project for Leeds Leader. And what I do there is I find, um, for argument's sake, 13 poets Mm -hmm. and somebody at the Music Conservatoire in in, uh, Leeds finds 13 students of composition. Um, And we put them together in a room and they each showcase their stuff for about five minutes. And then over a sort of mad hour of speed dating you know, cramming sandwiches and talking to each other, we, we, we end up with 13 collaborative mm. pairs. Mm. And they go off and write um, a song. And Lieder is the German um, for, you know, the particular sorts of songs that were written in the mm. uh, Romantic period, often set in Goethe and people like that. Um, but what we're trying to do with Leeds Leader, um, and I'm really supported in this by Joseph Middleton, who's an absolutely astonishingly good accompanist and a wonderful uh, musician, but also a great facilitator and a great mm. um, supporter of spoken word, um, is we're trying to push the envelope as to well, what does what is a lead in 2021, 2022? It's not necessarily going to be the young male poet saying, "I am walking by the stream and I hear my loved one's laughter and it falls like petals in the stream and I want to kill myself you know that's a sort of you know Mm. typical kind of (laughs) romantic I mean you know it's a little bit more than that but Schubert, Schumann, Wolf you know 
they were writing in the 19th century, but then you've mm. got, you know, contemporary lead as well. So, um, so we're wanting there to just see what comes out of, of these random yokings of mm. creative people. Mm. But another reason I'm so passionate about that is a really big part of my creative life. And, you know, we've talked about the collaborations I've done with other people. I've done... 12 or possibly 13 collaborations with one composer Mm, (laughs) Uh, varying from you know three minute songs that we wrote um, as sort of you know gifts to to people in the choir so we wrote a little anthem for um, a choir member who was getting married um, to a full-length requiem that was performed um, a couple of years ago um, actually to commemorate the, the end of you know the centenary celebrations or mm. commemorations at um, the end of World War I um, and that ties in again my academic work because mm. it's called the Penthos Requiem and I wrote my PhD thesis on the theme of Penthos which mm. is contrition and spiritual tears from mm. an Eastern Christian perspective so the wonderful composer I work with is called Matthew Oglesby and he's just the most he is a really astonishingly creative person and gosh I mean it's hard to look back on it really because we had so many other projects that we were going to do Um, I've written two opera libretti for him and I haven't yet actually Matthew seen those um, operas yet Um, but we were were also going to write um, a passion narrative from the perspective of Pontius Pilate which we're fairly convinced has not been done before Um, but we're hoping that the the Penthos Requiem will be performed again um, possibly with, with the choir St Peter singers yeah. that we both sing with. So collaborating in that way was completely different because people say, well, did the words come first or the music? Well, it was a bit of both. Um, and Matt and I just worked very, very intensively, but, I mean, together but also separately. So, you know, we were always talking about it, but the actual work went on in our own separate rooms, really. Mm-hmm. And then we... We'd put things together, and and you know he'd come to my house, and and you know we, where I've got a piano, and he would you know play bits and pieces, and he'd send me the scores, um, and that was just extraordinary. But then we needed a whole lot of other support mm. for that to see the light of day. So a fantastic team of people in the choir basically did the fundraising needed to pay for an orchestra, and you know to actually yeah. enable that that piece to be performed. Um, so that's another whole dimension, I guess, to collaboration and poetry. And Matt was very demanding, and so sometimes he'd say, well, I love the ideas you've got there, but you, you can't have that vowel sound because I'm setting it high in the soprano voice, and it's just got to be a completely different vowel sound. Yeah. Or, no, you've got a cluster of too many consonants there. You need to find another way of saying it that will <laughs> you know, have the same impact but won't be those same words. Yeah. So it's a completely different way of collaborating yeah. to when That's you're really just interesting using words. That I, um, I mean, is he a, a poet as well? Or, or no, he's a, he's, a, he's a singer, very fine singer, yeah. and he's a composer. It's interesting that he had have, have such a strong instinct and just know actually that won't work. I um, guess it's because poetry is a spoke, you know, it can be spoken. And I you, think it's you know because we both sing and, and yeah. we know as singers that, you know, the things that fall comfortably in your voice yeah. are written to, in to, a particular way. Music, yeah. yeah. Wow, Hannah, I think that you um, must have been a master collage maker in a different life because <laughs> I think you, all of this, you know, all of these aspects of your work have this quality of you taking things and fitting them together and creating something that kind of is, you know, more than those bits combined, which is really 
just been so interesting to hear about. I think we wrap it up there. We're at an hour and 10, which <laughs> is impressive. So thank you so much. Um, and have you got anything to plug? Obviously your books are available from their publishers. They are indeed. Um, which and are, they are. And there are copies of them in the library as well. In the Leeds Library, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you can't find any of them, then um, email me on hannahstone14 at hotmail.com and I can send you a signed copy if you get in touch with me. Um, I haven't got anything imminently coming out. I'm looking for a publisher for two um, pamphlet-length collections which are about completely different things. Mm. Um, and then I will be working on my next um, my next collection probably for, for Stairwell. Um, so watch this space. Yeah, and now but first, now Friday lunch times. Friday lunch times at the Leeds Library in person. Although for Absolutely. how long that's going to continue? Well, hybrid, aren't we? We're doing it hybrid. Hybrid, yeah. So. You can watch from home as well. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you very much for having me. It's been <laughs> a real right. delight. This has been a podcast from the Leeds Library. Links to more information about our guests and any works talked about can be found in the description. If you'd like to find out more about the Leeds Library and any of our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.theleedslibrary.org.uk or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at the Leeds Library. Thank you for listening and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more Tales from the Leeds Library in our future episodes released every Wednesday.